0: Welcome, everybody. Um, It's a great pleasure today to welcome Professor Jerome Dokic, who has come from Paris today. And I'd like to just say, on behalf of all of us to start with, that we're particularly grateful to you for coming on such a very, very sad weekend time. Um, It's very nice to have you here. Professor Dokic, as you know, is a professor at the École des Etudes in Paris, and he's a member of the to John he has written on many philosophical topics on sound a great deal of work on perception also on memory imagination but today the paper he's going to give is part of a sort of series of recent essays about what he calls metacognitive feelings and the title of his paper today is Aesthetic experience as metacognitive feeling. Um, we have no text today, but Professor Dokic will just deliver his paper, and uh, then there will be discussion. As well.
1: Thank you very much for the invitation. I'm very glad to be here. Um, I just have a few, I guess, a few pictures because I guess. Uh, it would not be fair to give a talk about aesthetic experience without um, showing some, some, some pictures, but there will be only a few few of them. Uh, so, we can do that. so the title, is the, title is, is the same as the one, almost the same. Maybe you, you have spotted the, the question mark, which is <laughs> crucial indeed. Uh, so so we'll say something about that later. So I will read my, my paper, um, and I hope it will be clear, but please tell me if, 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 uh, if I have to, to say some, something again during the talk. So my aim in this uh, talk is to characterise the, the notion of aesthetic experience. By aesthetic experience, I mean, uh, that's a kind of contextual definition, the kind of experience that we have when we are struck by the the beauty of an artwork, a landscape, a person, or even ordinary objects in some cases. And I, I shall use the term aesthetic object, the generic term, to refer to anything that can be the object of aesthetic experience, or the focus of aesthetic experience if you prefer. So, my aim is not to to give a complete account of uh, aesthetic experience, obviously, and what follows is nothing more than uh, a preliminary inquiry inspired by recent trends in empirical aesthetics. So, we'll talk about uh, some empirical psychological models about the nature of aesthetic experience. I surmise that a fuller account uh, should be essentially interdisciplinary, involving philosophy but also empirical aesthetics and, I think, the social sciences at large. But here it will be really a, a very focused uh, inquiry. At least some of our aesthetic judgments are experiential in the sense that they seem to derive directly from experience rather than theory or reasoning. And here's a quotation by an art critic... Herbert Mead, So writes, I quote, "...I don't believe that a person with real sensibility ever stands before a picture and, after a long process of analysis, pronounces himself pleased. We either like it at first sight or not, not at all." Here, Reed refers to judgments of liking, but his claim can be extended to explicit aesthetic judgments, including judgments of beauty. That painting is beautiful. The point is that at least some of these judgments are psychologically spontaneous in the sense that we seem to form them just on the basis of what we perceive and know about the aesthetic objects without having the impression of drawing a c- conclusion from a set of premises. So if Herbert Reed is, is right, so maybe we can, we can have to reason to find, for instance, the following uh, painting, uh, beautiful. And the next painting, not beautiful. So maybe, as Herbert Reed uh, says, we either like it at first sight or not at all. Maybe we can like this. Maybe some of you will like this kind of painting which comes from the Museum of Bad Art. Or maybe if you, if you have a picture like, like that. <laughs> so maybe we, we don't like this at first sight, but, but if we know more about uh, the way Jeff Koons uh, uh, works, for instance, the fact that he uses uh, uh, craftspeople, and, and so on and so forth, might, in fact, lead you to form a positive aesthetic judgment about uh, the artwork. So maybe Reed is not entirely right that uh, it's a kind of immediacy, uh, that aesthetic experience is immediate in, in, in this sense. Anyway, the question I'm interested in concerns the nature of the experience that gives rise to spontaneous uh, aesthetic judgments. So, assuming that there are aesthetic experiences in addition to aesthetic judgments, uh, so I will make this assumption. Uh, some of you might uh, reject the assumption, but I will work from the, this assumption that there are aesthetic experiences and not merely aesthetic judgments. I think that three uh, very general theoretical models of aesthetic experience can be uh, distinguished, and again with very broad uh, strokes. So the first model may be called the perceptual model because it relies on an analogy with sensory perception. On this model, aesthetic experience is an intentional attitude whose content involves some aesthetic property or value. So aesthetic experience is about some aesthetic property or value, some aesthetic state of affairs. Spontaneous aesthetic judgments Mm -hmm. Such as this sculpture is marvelous, for instance, can then be conceived as endorsing the aesthetic contents of the underlying aesthetic experiences, just as ordinary perceptual judgments, this flower is odorous, endorse the contents of perceptual experiences. So the first model is committed to the existence of aesthetic appearances, which play an evidential role with respect to aesthetic judgments. Aesthetic experiences have intentional objects, such as artworks, that appear beautiful, graceful, and so on to us, and constitute evidence for the aesthetic judgments. Here I will mainly talk about positive aesthetic judgments, but of course we can raise the question of uh, whether negative aesthetic judgments, uh, so this painting is ugly or not beautiful are grounded on negative aesthetic appearances or merely on the absence of positive aesthetic appearances. Now, of course, there are many important variants of the perceptual model. For instance, aesthetic experience can be construed as having non-conceptual content so that some conceptualization process is needed to move from such an experience to an aesthetic judgment, which of course has the conceptual content. Moreover, the aesthetic properties or values presented in these experiences can be either sui generis or reducible to non aesthetic, let's say, gestalt, gestalten involving non aesthetic properties such as symmetry, unity, coherence, and so on and so forth. And again, The relevant aesthetic properties or values can be conceived as as fully objective or relative to universal or context-dependent responses, so many variants of the perceptual model. The perceptual model is also compatible with the claim that aesthetic experience is a kind of emotion, a kind of affective state. Indeed, some philosophers have defended a perceptual theory of emotions, according to which... Emotions are presentations of value-laden states of affairs. Meinong, of course, but many uh, contemporary philosophers as well have defended such a view. For instance, fear would be a perceptual or quasi-perceptual experience of danger, assuming that danger is a value for us, and sadness would be a perceptual or quasi-perceptual experience of loss. Thus, an important variant of the perceptual model is that aesthetic experience is an emotional presentation of some aesthetic property or value. The second model is uh, the attitudinal model. So on this model, aesthetic experience is an intentional attitude, so it's, it's about something in the world, or maybe about something in the subject, but in contrast to the perceptual model, its content does not involve any aesthetic property or value. Aesthetic experience is about a non-aesthetic state of affairs. For instance, the the, the mere presence of uh, a painting, say say Guernica, in front of us. But it is still a sweet, generous attitude. It's still a specific mental state uh, or a single attitude which which is specific or at least typical to the uh, aesthetic domain. So what does it mean to say that they are specifically or typically aesthetic attitudes if the contents of these attitudes are not themselves uh, aesthetic? A relatively weak answer is that aesthetic attitudes have a characteristic phenomenological profile. What it is like to have an aesthetic experience is quite different from what it is like to have any other kind of experience. This answer is silent about the existence (coughs) of aesthetic properties or values. A more ambitious answer answer is that it is appropriate to have an aesthetic attitude only if its object object exemplifies some aesthetic property or value, whether objective or not. In other words, an an aesthetic attitude has intrinsic correctness conditions that involve some aesthetic property or value, even if the latter does not figure in the contents of the attitude. An important variant of the attitudinal model along these lines is an application of what Julien Déonife and Fabrice Thérony, two Swiss philosophers, call the attitudinal theory of emotions. So in their view, emotions are intrinsically related to values, but not at the level of their contents. Different types of emotions can have the same content. For instance, what frightens Mary say, a small dog in the vicinity, can be what Sam is amused by. The very same state of affairs, which is the object of both fear and amusement, uh, is of course uh, uh, something which is value-free. The mere presence of a dog in the vicinity is not something which is value-laden. However, emotions are correct on this view, only if their objects actually exemplify some value. Danger in the case of fear, loss in the case of sadness, some comical value in the case of amusement. Now su- su- Suppose we apply Deona and Terini's accounts to the aesthetic domain. <laughs> aesthetic attitudes would have aesthetic <clears throat> properties or values are their formal object, so to speak, namely as what their intentional object must exemplify if the attitudes are to be appropriate or correct. So it's appropriate to have... A, a positive uh, aesthetic experience only uh, in the presence of a beautiful painting, for instance. Is the attitudinal model committed to the existence of aesthetic appearances? Well, at least the relationship between aesthetic experience and aesthetic judgments can't be evidential, as in the perceptual model. Aesthetic judgments on the attitudinal model Uh, don't merely endorse the contents of aesthetic experiences, which are value-free, as observed uh, uh, earlier. So they go beyond these contents by relating them to more or less specific aesthetic values and properties. (coughs) On Deona and Theroni's view, I quote, it's in virtue of their phenomenology that emotions relate to evaluative, evaluative properties. End of quotation. Thus, aesthetic judgments could be sensitive to the overall phenomenal character of aesthetic experiences, even though only part of this character is determined by the contents of these experiences. So uh, some stories to be told about the transition from aesthetic experience to uh, aesthetic judgments on the uh, attitudinal atten- atten- model. The third model is the, uh, what I call the adverbialist model, It is, in comparison uh, with the other two models, probably uh, underdeveloped in the literature. Interestingly though, uh, Sabine Döring attributes an adverbialist view of emotions to uh, the the Austrian uh, writer Robert Musil. To experience fear, for instance, would be to view the world fearsomely. More precisely, Musil, according to Döring's interpretation, conceived of emotion, I quote, as gestalt qualities of a specific kind, that is, as higher-order phenomena that are extended in time and dynamically structured according to certain gestalt principles. So in this view, an emotion such as fear is not a separate or autonomous attitude, but it is an emotional way of organizing or combining a constellation of various other attitudes, including beliefs and desires. So I quote Döring again, uh, which is not to say that the subject's worldview is fearsome, but that his first-order thoughts, perception, and so on, are organized into the gestalt, which is the second-order emotion, thereby shaping the subject's worldview in terms of the val- valences that things have for him, and that is to focus on the subject's view on the features that, taken together as a whole, make things appear fearsome, shameful, discuss- disgusting, Etc. Et to him, end of quotation. As noted by Dering, a consequence of Müsil's view is that emotions are not intentional attitudes. I quote again: Emotions don't have an intentionality sui generis, but so to speak, borrow their intentionality from the components which constitute them as gestalt uh, qualities. Now, of course, uh, adverbialism about the whole realm of emotion is a bold claim, and I don't think it's it's actually a true account of uh, the emotions. Perhaps it only applies to some types of emotions, like maybe love. Maybe love is not a separate emotion, but some way of organizing um, various kinds of attitudes, including emotions. Um, and also... One might want to defend adverbialism more relevantly to, to my purposes here, to the specific case of, to, to defend adver, adverbialism, sorry in the specific case of aesthetic experience. So if there's a variant of the adverbialist model states that aesthetic experience is not itself intentional. it's not about anything. but it is best conceived as, as a specific and perhaps effective way of organizing, non-aesthetic attitudes. What these non-aesthetic attitudes are is up to examination, but in many cases, of course, they will include at least the perceptual experience of the, the aesthetic object. Depending on the context, they might also include various positively and negatively balanced affective states which need not themselves be analysed along adverbialist lines. An important issue about the adverbialist model is the relationship between aesthetic experience and aesthetic judgment. This relationship can't be evidential as in the perceptual model, since aesthetic experience is not about any aesthetic appearance. It can't be conceived as in the attitudinal model either. If aesthetic experience lacks intentionality, it can't have intrinsic correctness conditions. Aesthetic judgments might still reflect the subject's sensitivity to a specific phenomenological profile associated with the aesthetic way of organising various other attitudes. Obviously, much more has to be said about how aesthetic judgments derive from aesthetic experiences if the adverbialist model is on the right uh, track. Okay, so we have these three models again... Um, so on the first two models, aesthetic experience is an intentional attitude. It's, a, it's an attitude towards some state of affairs. According to the perceptual model, it's towards an aesthetic uh, state of affairs. It's not the case for the second model. But then we have a third model, again with broad strokes, uh, which uh, pictures aesthetic experience as not it's itself an intentional state, but as a way of combining... Other kinds of uh, attitudes, and it's fair to say that it's fair to say that the nature of aesthetic experience remains highly controversial. If you look at the literature, some, some philosophers say oh, it's an emotion. Some say it's, it's it's a perceptual state. Some say it's a, uh, it's a second-order attitude. Some say it's a first-order attitude. Some states it, it requires meta representational skills, I mean, the ability to form representations about uh, other representations, and so on and so forth. And it, again, I mean, no theoretical consensus has emerged yet about uh, the nature of aesthetic experience. And I won't, of course, uh, uh, resolve the, this issue here, but I think there's a promising way of getting a grip. An aesthetic experience, which exploits the fact that it has a characteristic motivational profile. In fact, I take it that Kant, the German philosopher, tried to describe such a profile in a most famous passage of the Critique of Judgments. So I guess everybody knows about the, the quotation. Uh, so, pleasure and the beautiful, says Kant, does have a causality inherent to it namely that of preserving the state of com- contemplation itself and keeping the cognitive powers engaged without any further aim. We linger in our contemplation of the beautiful because this contemplation st- strengthens and reproduces itself. So there's a kind of reflexivity, if you wish, in uh, aesthetic experience. And I think, I think this captures an important aspect of the phenomenology of aesthetic experience, Kant talks about uh, pleasure and the beautiful, and we we'll tell something more about that uh, a bit later. but I mean, you can substitute pleasure and the beautiful for um, you, you can replace uh, pleasure and the beautiful for, uh, with uh, aesthetic uh, experience here. So the point is that our aesthetic experience is self-sustaining in the sense that it motivates us to maintain our cognitive relation or attention, whether perceptual or intellectual or both, to the aesthetic object. Moreover, our motivation is internal to our aesthetic experience in the sense that it does not derive from independent desires or needs that we may have. The foregoing characterization of the motivational profile of aesthetic experience, which I shall call the aesthetic motivational profile, is quite crude, and several comments are uh, in order. First, the notion of self-sustaining experience is related to the Kantian claim that aesthetic experience is disinterested. That's a claim that many philosophers of aesthetics have, of course, uh, commented on. So when we have an aesthetic experience, we are obviously interested in the aesthetic object. So no aesthetic experience without some interest in the object. But we are interested in the object per se, that is, without ulterior purposes. This stance is compatible with other more interested forms of attention to the object. The point is that whatever interests are otherwise involved in our our global experience, we aesthetically attend to the object on its own terms. The, the motivational profile of the experience is primitive, every, that is, even though it can be so, sorry, it's primitive even though it can be overturned by independent desires and needs. For instance, I may be primitively motivated to linger at the museum to admire the works of my favorite artist, but decide to leave because I have an important date. But still, I have a primitive motivation to, so to speak, stay uh, in front of my favorite paintings. Second, if the aesthetic motivational profile is uh, reflexive, in some sense, we can leave upon, for the time being, the question of whether this reflexivity must be conceptualised as such by the subject. The subject who has an aesthetic experience at least implicitly tries to preserve it just by having the experience, but it might not follow that she has to deploy concepts of experience or or other kinds of mental representations. Although I think sometimes, for, for, for Uh, many uh, aesthetic experiences, such deployments of sophisticated concepts of experience are probably required. In fact, as we shall see below, aesthetic experience need not be meta-representational in an important sense. It can be, but it it need not not be. Third, uh, uh, Kant ties the notion of aesthetic experience to a form of pleasure, Uh, and in fact it distinguishes between several kinds of pleasure, not, not of course, all of which are aesthetic, but we can and should acknowledge cases of aesthetic experience that don't yield pleasure, or at least not uh, immediately. Some of our aesthetic experiences are not pleasurable, yet involve the kind of reflexive motivation described by, by Kant. So good artwork, for instance, can strike us as intriguing, fascinating or heartbreaking. In general, negative emotions are very often among the most important components of our aesthetic experience, and at least some of them don't seem to be pseudo-emotions, for instance quasi-emotions in uh, uh, Walton's uh, sense. So (coughs) So for instance, uh, if... this, this kind of, of painting is often uh, uh, <coughs> mentioned as an example of of uh, of the sublime uh, as opposed to the beautiful, but probably i mean anxiety in a form of angst is what you you're feeling at first uh, sight at least when you see uh, the painting, so maybe seeing the painting is not so pleasurable uh, after all. Well, I think Jesse Prince, in a couple of uh, recent papers and a forthcoming book about aesthetic experience, as it writes, when he, he writes, I quote, art induces emotions that are appetitive and hence positively balanced, even if the emotions are not always uh, pleasurable. As we'll see, I will, I will nuance, uh, in fact, Prince's uh, claim, since I don't think aesthetic experience is itself evaluative, as we will see. Of course, aesthetic judgments. Are uh, evaluations and aesthetic evaluations of uh, the aesthetic object. But anyway, I think Jesse Prince is right when he, he, he claims that, uh, uh, in fact, uh, again, I mean, negative emotions might be uh, uh, pervasive in uh, aesthetic experience, yet leads to positive aesthetic judgments. That's That's the point. Now, my suggestion is that the notion of aesthetic motivational profile uh, be seen as a constraint on an adequate account of aesthetic experience. Any candidate for the role of aesthetic experience should have the relevant motivational profile. It does not follow that it's, it's a very simple constraint, but as you will see, I mean, some important theory, theories of aesthetic uh, experience actually don't uh, meet that constraint. It does not follow that the aesthetic experience is the only kind of mental state that has the aesthetic motivational profile. I call it the aesthetic motivational profile, but maybe it's not essentially or intrinsically aesthetic. To take a very down-to-earth example, maybe the dynamic experience which which consists in desiring peanuts, or wanting peanuts and eating them, is also self-sustaining given that uh, it's unfolding in time typically give rise to more uh, desire to eat uh, peanuts. So there's something self-sustaining in the experience of uh, wanting and eating peanuts. Romantic love might also have an aesthetic motivational profile, as when someone lingers in the eyes of her or his uh, beloved, but it's not obvious that love is an aesthetic emotion. I'll come back to this point uh, at the end of the talk, if I have time. In what follows, I uh, 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 would like to examine the claim that the aesthetic motivational profile can be explained in terms of epistemic feelings and emotions, that is, uh, feelings and emotions uh, having to do with uh, uh, knowledge, uh, uncertainty, familiarity, confusion, and so on and so forth. I shall first describe an empirical theory according to which aesthetic experience itself is a kind of epistemic feeling, namely the phenomenological reflection of processing fluency. However, this uh, theory faces important, uh, serious problems, I think, and I shall eventually suggest that aesthetic experience is best conceived as a unique combination of epistemic feelings and emotions. So that will be the main, not claim, but the main uh, working hypothesis that I would like to put forward here. <coughs> Thus, I shall uh, tentatively uh, defend a variant of the adverbialist. Uh, An influential empirical account of aesthetic experience is the so-called processing fluency uh, theory. So that's uh, a psychological theory about the nature of aesthetic experience and about the source of uh, spontaneous aesthetic judgments. So in this uh, theory, aesthetic experience is a metacognitive feeling that reflects processing fluency, which means... Processing ease, the ease with which uh, some stimulus is processed by the brain, low effort at the level of the brain dynamics, if you wish, and high speed. It is the subjective ease, to borrow a term used by by a psychologist, with with which some mental operation is performed. So the general idea is that high processing fluency generates a positive effect, so it feels good if you wish, which, at least in appropriate contexts, can feed into spontaneous aesthetic judgments. So I quote uh, Rolf Rolf Reber, uh, a prominent psychologist in this uh, area, the more fluently the perceiver can process an object, the more positive is his or her aesthetic response. In the perceptual domain, process fluency is determined by both objective features of the perceived object, such as its uh, simplicity, uh, uh, figural goodness, that is, symmetry, roundness, and so on and so forth, perceptual contrast, cl- clarity, but also subjective features, such as repeated exposure to the perceived object, implicit learning, and prototypicality. So there's an effect called the mere exposure effect in uh, empirical aesthetics according to which if you show um, s- to subjects uh, the same stimulus over and again, then the subject will tend to prefer that stimulus over uh, other stimuli which uh, which are new to to him or to her. So if you wish, if you uh, if you see the same object again and again. That your, your brain, your visual brain, if it's a visual object, will be used to process that object and uh, will, will generate some kind of positive response, which is, in fact, uh, according to this theory, uh, recruited into the formation of an aesthetic judgment. In contrast, the perceptual process will be, uh, will be disfluent if the stimulus is too complex, new or unfamiliar. Now, processing fluency, fluency, of course, is a sub personal dynamic feature of cognitive processes. But psychologists of metacognition have convincingly shown that it can be reflected at the phenological level, and more precisely by feelings, that is, subtle affective states that may lead to reliable metacognitive judgments. Indeed, met, many metacognitive feelings are sensitive to processing fluency. For instance, the feeling that the woman there in front of me is familiar which can give rise to a judgment like, uh, I've already met this woman, is sensitive to the fluency of face processing, or perhaps more uh, precisely to uh, discrepancies between expected and observed fluency of face processing. Similarly, the the feeling of visual confidence, which can give rise to a judgment like, I'm pretty sure I've seen a cardinal in this tree, is sensitive to the fluency of the relevant visual a cognitional process. So we don't have access, uh, conscious access to uh, fluency, which is a subpersonal dynamic features, but uh, fluency can cause uh, feelings at the, f- the personal level, feelings that are then exploited in the formation of uh, judgments, including metacognitive judgments. Now the processing fluency theory may be seen as an instance of the attitudinal model. In contrast to the perceptual model, aesthetic experience is not about an aesthetic state of affairs. The feeling of fluency is caused by non-aesthetic properties, whether objective or subjective, as we saw. The feeling of fluency is aesthetically relevant at the level of its psychological modes and maybe at the level of phenomenology plus context, let's say. In contrast to adverbialist model, aesthetic experience is depicted as a single attitude, namely a sp- specific metacognitive feeling. We, might, we may call it the feeling of fluency. <coughs> whether that feeling has intrinsic correctness conditions is a philosophical issue that, that has not much interested psychologists. Some of them have nevertheless insisted that whether feelings of fluency give rise to aesthetic judgments heavily depends on the context. Okay, so the the link between aesthetic experience, the feeling of fluency, and uh, Positive aesthetic judgments can be broken very easily uh, uh, by, by, by the psychologist, but also uh, in uh, real life. And this is not congenial to the claim that they have intrinsic rather than a- intrinsic aesthetic correctness conditions. But it's still an instance of the attitudinal model, if you wish, because we have a single state, a single feeling, which is supposed to feed into uh, positive aesthetic judgments. Now we've already anticipated a natural objection to the processing fluency theory namely that artists often select artworks that elicit processing disfluency by exhibiting complexity unfamiliarity alienation disharmony imbalance indeterminacy uncertainty and so on and so forth So again some some disgusting uh, artworks for instance or uh, some kind of display which in fact uh, makes us a bit dizzy when we that that's in fact a dynamic uh, when you move relative to uh Soto sculptures and I mean your eyes just vibrate in a kind of strange uh, way so it's 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 not fluency of visual processing, but it's disfluency it's in all these cases. And indeed, studies involving exposure to, to real art, artworks rather than artificial stimuli, stimuli show that pref- preferences can also increase with complexity rather than simplicity. Now, Nicolas uh, Bülow and Rolf Reber have uh, recently tried to defend the processing fluency theory against this objection. The objection that fluency is actually uh, uh, very often selected by uh, artists, and they have done so by drawing a distinction between perceptual and conceptual processing fluency. They write, I quote: "Proficiency with the conceptual content of perceptually different artworks may lead aesthetic pleasure." because proficiency yields high conceptual fluency that could override the difficulty of identifying representational or expressive elements. So in their view, this fluency is a means to provoke elaboration and resolution at further cognitive levels, including conceptual levels. But high processing fluency has the last word, so to speak. So these authors (coughs) insist that aesthetic experience as a whole is always pleasing. So you might have many, uh, if you wish, uh, negative emotions or feelings uh, involved in your experience, but eventually, I mean, your experience is an, is an experience of pleasure. Okay, so pleasure wins over all the negative emotions and, and feelings that are involved in your uh, experience. Whatever the, whatever the merits of this defense, the processing fluency f- theory faces another objection, which is that it does not explain why aesthetic experience has the aesthetic motivational profile. The core of this objection is that pleasingness correlates negatively with interest or curiosity. When the processing of an object becomes fluent, our interest for the object decreases, so the object becomes boring, mutatis mutandis. What is familiar belongs to the background, and does not attract normally our attention. Familiarization is the cognitive process that makes initially salient objects fade into the background. We are interested in new objects or new aspects of the object that we perceive, that is objects that are unfamiliar to us at least in some respects and given our expectations. So pleasingness by itself at least to the extent that it corresponds to high processing fluency, can't motivate us to maintain our attention to the aesthetic object. It's a very simple objection, but I think it's it's valid. Now even if the processing fluency theory is wrong-headed, the hypothesis that aesthetic experience is sensitive to the fluency of the underlying cognitive processes might still be worth exploring. Intuitively, aesthetic experience often, if not always, involves epistemic feelings and emotions, including familiarity, interest, surprise, and confusion. Different epistemic feelings result from different subpersonal appraisal mechanisms, according to the best empirical models we have of these feelings. More precisely, the relevant mechanisms are what psychologists call coping potential appraisal. They entail evaluating whether one has the abilities and resources to manage a demand, to quote uh, Paul Silvia, a psychologist who has uh, much uh, worked on uh, curiosity and interest. For instance, interesting, interesting things are appraised as both new and understandable, something which is worth exploring, while confusion results from appraising the object as both new but hard to understand. Coping potential appraisals are very often a function of the fluency or disfluency of the relevant cognitive processes. Arguably, aesthetic experience can't be identified with a single type of epistemic feeling. It is not the feeling of familiarity, at least if the latter correlates negatively with interest. So, As observed earlier, we are not primitively motivated to continue to attend to familiar objects. Aesthetic experience can't be identified with the feeling of interest either. Aesthetic objects are interesting, of course, but it's not obvious that the feeling of interest itself can have the aesthetic motivational profile. In fact, we are primitively motivated motivated to resolve the tension due to uncertainty inherent to the perception of unfamiliar objects. So neither merely pleasing nor merely interesting objects are apt to cause an experience that is self-sustaining in the relevant sense. Although each type of feeling or emotion should be examined in some details, we should be open to the possibility that aesthetic experience can't be identified with a single type of affective state. Still, it might involve or be constituted by a unique combination of different types of epistemic feelings. Following Daniel uh, Berlin's uh, seminal work, uh, Paul Silvia suggests that our aesthetic judgments are sensitive to or reflect two independent and uh, antagonist uh, variables corresponding to pleasingness and interestingness. While pleasingness corresponds to fluency, interestingness is correlated with disfluency or informational incongruity. Disfluency can be due to complexity, novelty, unfamiliarity or uncertainty concerning the object. In contrast to the processing fluency theory, the dual aspect theory uh, explains uh, why some artists systematically, even if not self-consciously, exploit this fluent uh, object. So the the dual aspect theory is the theory according to which uh, there are uh, antagonist epistemic feelings involved in our aesthetic experience. Of course, what remains to be explained is how exactly aesthetic judgments correlate with pleasingness and interestingness. For instance, is a good artwork both pleasing and interesting, only under different aspects? What's the right uh, balance of fluency and disfluency that is supposed to give rise to a positive aesthetic judgment? At this point, the notion of aesthetic motivational profile may be helpful as a way of uh, uh, accounting for the notion of aesthetic experience. A good aesthetic object should present both familiar and novel aspects, but in a way which explains why we are primitively motivated to continue to attend to it. A a crucial aspect of aesthetic experience is that we remain interested in the aesthetic object despite the inevitable process of familiarisation induced by its very consideration. A good artwork, for instance, is one which resists familiarisation, Familiarization with the aesthetic object does not extinguish interest in it. Resistance to familiarization can have several sources. The familiarization process could reveal further aspects of the aesthetic objects that are less familiar, and raise our interest again. Another possibility is that the familiarization process is partial, because the aesthetic object is familiar in some respects only. So so it can't be... uh, wholly familiarized, so to speak. As soon as familiarity and interest are independent variables, psychologically speaking, for instance, they can correspond to different sets of expectations, many combinations are, are possible. Thus, what I think is a plausible view is that an aesthetic motivational profile can arise from a suit- suitable dynamic combination of familiarity and novelty, or, at the phenological level, pleasure and interest. More precisely, we can now operationalize the notion of aesthetic experience as whatever combination of pleasure and interest gives rise to the aesthetic motivational profile. This is what I would like to offer as a working hypothesis for philosophical and empirical aesthetics. On the dual aspect theory, positive aesthetic judgment is compatible with unresolved cognitive, cognitive disfluency, even at the highest conceptual level. Some artists exploit the cognitive opacity of our epistemic feelings, such as the fact that we can have the feeling of familiarity without knowing what is familiar. Think of the the tip of the tongue uh, experience, for instance, in which you know that uh, the answer answer is something is familiar, but you don't know what is familiar. You're looking for the answer to a question, for instance, or the name of a person in front of you. And you can have the feeling of incongruity without knowing what's wrong and should be corrected. You feel that something is wrong, but it's not immediately clear to you what should be uh, corrected or changed, namely the world or uh, your uh, mental states. So consider, for instance, uh, a disfluence artwork such as uh, uh, Movement in Squares by uh, Bridget Riley. So it is clearly visually disfluenced. And of course, if uh, the theory of metacognitive feelings is right, uh, there is some kind of phonological reflection of this disfluency in the visual processing of the artwork. Now, we might feel an interesting tension between the relative simplicity of the depicted shapes, because after all the shapes are relatively simple, and the visual mess that we experience. When the tension is resolved at the conceptual level, okay, so we are aware of the tension. We are aware that maybe the visual mess is uh, inside us is is a product of our visual system rather than something which is uh, an objective feature of the painting. Then maybe the, the painting be- may become slightly uh, boring. But then we might still find some further interest in the thought that the painting invites us to reflect on our visual relationship to the world, and so on and so forth. Okay? So there's a kind of dynamic uh, loop between uh, familiarity and, uh, and uh, novelty, which might, for some of us at least, uh, lead to a positive aesthetic judgment about uh, that uh, painting. Another example of, of low-level tension which might initiate an aesthetic experience, is uh, Sarah's uh, monumental uh, sculptures, which are, uh, as you may know, slightly uh, tilted. So the spectator might feel some incongruity between the vertical orientation of the sculpture as seen, that is, visual verticality, and uh, verticality as experienced via the subject's uh, vestibular system. So there's a kind of tension between... uh, the, two, uh, the visual processing and the vestibular processing which might lead to some kind of feeling of anxiety or that something is, is wrong with the sculpture. For instance, the sculpture might look vertical but feel as if it, it's going to fall down. Okay. Or maybe the other way around in some circumstances. Now, This unusual tension is interesting and again might, uh, lead to, <coughs> might initiate an aesthetic experience. Of course, there's much more about uh, Serra's sculpture than such incongruity, but uh, that might be something which uh, partly explains why we continue to attend to the sculpture and try to understand what is going on. So, of course, the dual aspect theory is not, is not a full account of aesthetic experience, and uh, from a philosophical point of view, it leaves open quite different conceptions of the ontology of uh, aesthetic experience. One conception is that aesthetic experience is a separate mental state that emerges from the right combination of familiarity and novelty. Another conception which I tend to favor is that aesthetic experience is a way of organizing various experiences having to do with familiarity and novelty, such as the subject the fact that the subject is primi- su- such as, sorry, in such a way that the subject is primitively motivated to maintain a relation to the aesthetic object. <laughs> The second conception is an instance of the adverbalist model. In general, it's hard to identify a single affective state, be it an emotion, a mood, or a feeling, that has the aesthetic motivational profile. Aesthetic experience is not the conscious result of a specific type of subpersonal appraisal related to either the fluent or the disfluent aspects of the processing of the aesthetic object. However, there's no need to reify aesthetic experiences since it can be conceived as a unique combination of otherwise autonomous experiences which has the, the relevant motivational uh, profile. So, import, an important philosophical issue is whether aesthetic experience is essentially aesthetic or whether one can have the same kind of experience in a non aesthetic context. Prince, for instance, argues that uh, aesthetic experience is, I quote, a cultur- culturally elaborated extension of a biologically basic emotions, end of quotation, namely wonder. L'émerveillement in French. In his view, we can experience wonder in non-aesthetic contexts, as when we stare into the eyes of our beloved or look at a newborn baby. So let's assume that wonder is self-sustaining in the sense that it has the aesthetic motivational profile. Again, staring into the eyes of our beloved causes us to maintain our cognitive relationship to uh, him, I presume. However, on the dual aspect theory, it's not obvious that such experience is aesthetic, since presumably it does not involve the right combination of familiarity and novelty. Many authors uh, uh, are willing to distinguish the phenomenology of romantic love from the phenomenology of aesthetic experience. For instance, the French phenomenologist, Michel Dufresne, argues that, I quote, "...love requires a union which is not needed by the aesthetic object, because the latter holds the spectator at a distance." End of quotation. On the dual aspect theory, the relevant distance is achieved by the felt tension between familiar and novel aspects of the aesthetic object such attention need not be pleasing as the kind of union and reciprocation acquired by, by Love. Does it follow that, that the dual aspect theory is committed to the claim that aesthetic experience is essentially aesthetic? This is partly an empirical question. Perhaps some experiences of uncanniness, uh, which involve an object having both familiar and unfamiliar aspects, are sustaining without being aesthetic. In a well-known essays, essay called The Uncanny, Das Unheimliche, Freud notes that although the feeling of uncanniness is pervasive in the aesthetic domain, it's not an intrinsically aesthetic feeling. In the right context, though, feelings of uncanniness can be recruited in the formation of aesthetic judgments. So, in fact, one of the examples that Freud gives of uh, the uncanny is a wax model of a human figure. Okay, So, we we see a human. Uh, we see a wax figure of a human. Uh, that's not wax, uh, uh, of, a, of a human figure, and we have the feeling that something is both familiar but also not so familiar. And uh, uh, this feeling is what Freud calls the feeling of uncanniness or the feeling of the uncanny. Because of course we recognize a human figure. We have some expectations that are related to. Uh, that aspect, which is familiar in the object, uh, but our expectations are not fully met because, of course, we, the, the 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 figure does not behave uh, as a, a real uh, human. So maybe that's that's a feeling which, in fact, might be uh, self-sustaining to a certain extent. So might be a candidate for being an aesthetic feeling, uh, but it might not lead to an aesthetic. Uh, judgments, or maybe maybe you want to defend the claim that in fact it's an aesthetic (coughs) feeling after all, even though it might not lead uh, spontaneously to an aesthetic uh, judgment. On the dual aspect theory, aesthetic experience is constituted by a series of other kinds of attitudes, including epistemic emotions and feelings. Thus, aesthetic experience is essentially dynamic. In this respect, I think the aesthetic case is unlike the moral case, for instance, where moral intuitions are often immediate. When I see kids torturing a cat, I immediately feel that they are doing something utterly wrong. In contrast, an aesthetic experience is not immediate, or is not always immediate, since its its unity shows up at the level of the way various attitudes are connected and unfold in time. So in this respect, we should perhaps... Uh, uh, nuance what Herbert Reed claimed that we like an artwork at first sight or not at all. At least, if this means that our aesthetic experience must be immediate. And In fact, many philosophers and art critics, critics, not Reed, but other <coughs> critics, often highlight the epistemic dynamics of aesthetic experience. Here so is just one, one example, and I think I will. I'm almost uh, done. So Alan Carlson uh, <coughs> writes, I quote, essential to aesthetic appreciation, so he's talking about aesthetic appreciation, uh, and we have been talking about aesthetic experience, but I think uh, part of his point uh, still holds, involving cognitive and emotional interaction between the appreciator and the object of appreciation. So an important aspect of this engagement is a kind of dialogue between appreciator and object in which the latter explicitly or implicitly poses a certain questions or problems, and the former finds the answers or solutions. But having feelings of uh, familiarity, or feelings of interest, or feelings of curiosity, epistemic feelings, are ways of uh, implicitly asking questions about the world, about about what we know or ignore uh, uh, about the world. Such finding of answers or solutions typically takes the form of coming to realizations about the nature of the object of appreciation. This process of realizing is at the heart of aesthetic appreciation. It employs the imagination, so as to produce that unique combination of admiration and awe that is central to aesthetic experience. Aesthetic experience takes time because it requires a dynamic interaction between the subject and the aesthetic object. So in the conclusion, I mean, uh, I I, I tried to raise several uh, points about uh, the dual aspect theory, including whether it's compatible with uh, realism about aesthetic values and uh, properties. Maybe we can talk about that in the discussion. Let me just end by by saying uh, the following. So many views entail that aesthetic experience is an evaluation of the aesthetic object. For instance, one might uh, want to identify aesthetic experience with a positive emotional response, uh, for instance, wonder, as in Prince's theory. To have an aesthetic experience of an artwork is to marvel in it, which involves valuing a feature of the artwork. Now, of course, aesthetic judgments are evaluative to the extent that they they involve, implicitly or explicitly, concepts of aesthetic values. However, on the dual aspect theory, it's not obvious that aesthetic experience itself is evaluative. It typically involves many forms of appraisal and uh, uh, in, in even conscious evaluations, but aesthetic experience as a whole is not based on an aesthetic appraisal. <coughs> Perhaps aesthetic experience involves a kind of higher level uncertainty about which appraisal is relevant to the processing, so it would be a kind of meta metacognitive Feeling, but this is not the same as an aesthetic uh, appraisal, I think, an appraisal uh, with respect to aesthetic uh, properties or uh, values. So on the view, very briefly sketched in this talk, um, there are aesthetic experiences over and above aesthetic judgments. However, aesthetic experiences are not intentional and should not be conceived as involving an aesthetic evaluation of the world, Again, it's a tentative hypothesis. Aesthetic experiences are ways of organizing or combining various non-aesthetic attitudes, including epistemic feelings or emotions, having to do with uh, familiarity and novelty. Obviously, such a view is still sketchy, very much sketchy, and should be brought uh, to the tribunal of experience. And I think some aspects of the theory can be empirically uh, tested. It's worth considering, though, as as it seems to make sense of uh, uh, some of what we know about the psychology of aesthetic appreciation, and thank you for...